0: where do i start how do i train recall how long should we work on healing before moving on is crate training really that important we hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them the complete step-by-step dog training course found at standing stone supply they break down the what when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one-year-old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out StandingStoneSupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%.
1: And so managing chase is, I think, the most important step in the process. I'm going to, I just want to teach the dog it's okay to chase, but you must turn when I recall you. And over the course of time, I'm going to slowly taper that back. So to the point where you begin to anticipate being recalled and you check your own chase up.
0: Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird. Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out uplandguncompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform... But look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that
1: bird. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: All right, everybody, welcome back to another week of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. My guest this week, Grayson Geyer of Lost Highway Kennels. Grayson, how you doing, man?
1: I'm good, man. I'm good. Yeah. I'm already uh, crusty and sweaty from the hot day down here. Wasn't expecting.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, we're recording this in early February. This, this isn't going to come out for, for a hot minute while I kind of compile this woe series, but it's already hot over there by you.
1: Man, I I got up this morning and it was uh, there was frost on everything. My fingers are all split open, and somewhere around noontime I just started sweating. And I didn't even look at the temperature, but I'd be surprised if we weren't well into the seventies this afternoon.
0: Yeah, I went I went and helped uh, T W R A do a uh, burn on one of the public lands here yesterday. Oh. And, uh, same thing, same, what you just described frost on the ground. I'm like, all right, it's a little chilly. I'm taking a hoodie and a vest and, and I get out there I'm like, all right, it's hot. I take it off and I'm in a t-shirt just sweating and, uh, it, it's early February. So it's a little strange.
1: That's how it is, man. You know, how it goes. Oh, yeah.
0: the, the Southeast, well, Me and you hadn't talked in a while, you know. It's it's been a hot minute since you've been on the podcast or we've seen each other. Kind of catch me up. How'd your hunting season go? Any good woodcock flight for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, I can't complain. I I would say average to slightly above average flight for for our little home area here. I made a couple of trips down east, and birds were solid down there as usual. Um, it was a good, uh, this was, I probably hunted more days this season than I ever have. Okay. So, um, so it was good. I got skunked a couple of times, but, you know, usually found birds and had a couple of, had a couple of days for the books. Yeah. So I'll take that.
0: Yeah. Getting skunked a few times, there's worse things in the world. That's just part of it. Right. It makes you appreciate the good days.
1: It, it really does, man. I mean, and, and I was able, I think, I don't know if it's maturity or what, but this year they hit me less hard than normal. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let me ask you on the flights because I kind of heard the same thing out east. I heard that the coastline was, was really good this year, uh, probably in western North Carolina. You probably ended up kind of what we had here in Tennessee a little bit to where it was real spotty, real flighty. It's It's almost like the birds would be here one day, then gone the next, and then back the following day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I'm, you know, that's kind of common. I'm kind of, I've learned to expect that. Um, We had a, uh, we had one hard freeze in December Mm -hmm. and it seemed to really disrupt everything. It pushed, I mean, there were no birds in my, in my normal holes uh, directly following that. So that ground froze. It stayed that way for probably well over a week just frozen solid and it seemed like it took a good two weeks of, of warmer weather regular weather for the birds to start filtering back in and you know i mean it's it's all speculative i have no idea what they do i don't know if we still <laughs> got birds up north that are kind of coming back down or they're birds that moved out and they moved back in i don't know but it is weird like they they come and go man and and you just never know yeah but, you know,
0: th- this season was a particularly just strange in my backyard you know i have uh i'm kind of blessed with uh woodcock run where i just use them for training birds i don't even shoot them down here but i just get the dogs on them and in the past two years i mean we've we've pointed and flushed over 100 each year this year i didn't hit 20 the the entire year in all fairness i did not run it as much as I have the past two years because I've been on the road more this year. But at the same time, just, just kind of running the dogs on a, on a fun run uh, when I did have the chance, we just weren't seeing the numbers that that I'm accustomed to so far. So it was definitely an off year as far as my property is concerned.
1: It's still, it's, I mean, I know it hurts, you know, I know <laughs> it's still heartbreaking now when you, when you, you know, kind of get, it, it it seems that way here. Like we're definitely seeing more pressure, in the last that this year worse than ever before yeah um on our on our hunting you know our, our public land local and and we have um you know limited public land that it makes for good woodcock habitat here and so it doesn't take a whole lot of pressure to make it feel real crowded for you but um but I, you know it was good i think i learned a lot more this year cuz I, I i looked for different spaces and you know i found birds in places that you know i would check on in the past but i feel like i got I, I got better at at least prospecting for birds this year but um but yeah it still hurts when you go to a place where you're expecting to see birds and they're not there yeah. that's never a settling feeling
0: yeah and and of course you know i i, I might be a little guilty of getting some people out in the in the woods down here in the southeast but it, honestly the secret was going to get out regardless because it's yeah. like there's really not another opportunity uh sure. kind of like woodcock i mean i you know i went down there and hunted with jim on snipe and stuff and if you haven't done that yet you need to you need to get him to take you out there because that was a blast but besides the snipe it's like Realistically, I mean, you can go, you can go beat the bushes and, and go find the unicorn grouse and, and the occasional covey of quail, but for the most part, the only one that you're really going to be able to like pursue in any real uh, intention is is the woodcock, and and it seems like all the states in the southeast are kind of figuring that out.
1: Oh yeah, and it's I mean, and it, I, I definitely have mixed emotions about it. I mean, there's you know my my practical pragmatic and and you know uh professional self recognizes the value in recruitment you know and we need we need more people out there we need more people that um that love the resource to conserve the resource and and to provide more access you know I mean, the more people that are out there caring about it the the better chance we have of procuring more public lands that are going to be dedicated to that or, or or just making sure that there's uh, people stewarding the birds you know and and so it's gotta happen it's it's good for the i think it's good for the resource but at the same time yeah man it you know it's it's what it is and i'm just as guilty as anybody out there i mean it's a uh, i i i definitely wonder if I'm doing the right thing sometimes, but at the end of the day, I think in my heart of hearts, I believe I I do. Yeah.
0: It's always a delicate balance, right? Between hunting, stewardship, conservation. It's kind of it's a double-edged sword no matter how you look at it. It's if you don't take yeah. anybody, then you don't recruit, then guess what? Nobody's buying licenses, nobody's fighting, nobody's showing up to meetings when you need them. Well, you recruit, and then all of a sudden you're bumping elbows in the woods, and then the more pressure on the birds. It's, it's a catch-22 no matter how, how you look at it.
1: Yeah, and and this year in particular, so I in, in years past, you know, it's been a long time, but I actually spent a couple of years I guided just for the public and i realized really quickly um that i was burning spots and so this year i i did take some clients with their own dogs and we prospected and i made sure they were well aware of that that i was not taking them to birds that we were going to put put a little effort in um you know in prep looking at on x and and looking at Google Earth and thinking about what we wanted to do, and and traveling to where we thought the birds might be, and then got in places I'd never been before, and it was it was a good experience. It was a good experience for me. I think they learned something. Then we found found birds almost every time they Mm. were like those those skunks when you're taking somebody else hurt even worse but
0: (laughs) yeah i've i've been there i mean kind of like you i enjoy taking new people i enjoy getting their their dogs their first wild birds as well as themselves but uh you know it's like when i don't feel too bad when they're coming out to my place but yeah when we make a concerted effort to go out to to a spot and you don't you don't see anything it, it it hurts a little bit
1: but it's like I said, man, you see a new dog get into bird. you see somebody watch their dog come, you know, it's, it's, it's cool, too, because you see people that have really struggled getting off the ground with their young dogs, and they get a half dozen Woodcock contacts, and all of a sudden, the dog looks like an old pro. <laughs> all
0: right. <You> know?
1: <laughs> it, it doesn't always happen that way, but sometimes it does, you it, know, and.
0: I, I think it would surprise a lot of people at how often it does happen that way. It doesn't yeah. happen every time, but but to your point, it's you know it doesn't take that many woodcock for your dogs to start piecing it together and and figuring it out, and then then you can really go out and have some fun with them. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's great. It's a great resource. So yeah, I mean, here we are. There's probably a lot of people cussing us right now, but. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, they're probably cursing us for, for a different reason. Like I said, we're, we're talking in early February here, and this episode's probably not coming out till like, end of March or early <laughs> April. Uh, but you know how I do. You're, you're pretty much bookending. You're, you're closing out my uh, Woe series here. And okay. uh, when I do these series, I, I make sure I record all of them. They're in the bank before I start releasing them. So this will be out in a minute. So people listening to this will be like, "All right, yeah, y'all are recapping hunting season, and it's April by now." <laughs> so they'll deal with it.
1: About it. Yeah. I'll be I'll be missing it already. I'll be re- looking forward to September and April for right. sure.
0: We're running on spring birds, right? The return flight. That's what we're talking about. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Uh, so again. It, you're you're closing out this series, and and this one might throw a few people for a curveball ultimately. And you haven't heard any of the other episodes. Like I said, they haven't come out. I haven't shared them. None of that. So this this is going to be fun. We're going to come at at woe from a completely different angle we've kind of covered all the main methods or or the more popular ones nowadays and you're going to come on and you're going to throw people a a little bit of a curveball slightly a little bit i'm I'm sure that this is going to kind of go down a bunch of different paths as we kind of try and make sense of this but we're going to talk about running and and preparing your dog without the use of woe without using woe at all not doing it uh, before we get into that, can you kind of give me your definition or or how you would put into words what woe really is, and uh, the benefits as well as maybe the cons of it as well?
1: Yeah, and so I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to mislead folks. It's just so full disclosure, I, I use the command woe on occasion. It's it's the context in which I use it that I think is you know differs from. Um, from maybe other mainstream trainers out there. Uh, so I, to me personally, I think, um, there's a, there's plenty of value in being able to stop your dog, especially remotely in motion. So to the important part of this, in my opinion, is the stop in motion. And that's where I start. Uh, oftentimes I see, um, other traditional methods, uh, start with duration. So the dog's already in position. And when the dog steps out of position, um, that's when they employ either the command and whatever sort of reinforcer or punisher that's going to be coupled with that. And so for me personally, uh, it's there's, I don't, the way I do things there, I don't see much value in introducing that too early. And uh, I would say, Um, I, I don't want to talk, I mean, it's, it's tough because, you know, when we talk about what maybe the cons of woe early are, uh, it, it gets, it's just something else to get in the way of allowing my dog or my client's dog to form a relationship with the bird. So that's the way I want, when I think of a dog, learning bird work for the first time and, and what's happening. I am there in my opinion, as a facilitator and I'm facilitating a predator and prey relationship. I want my dog. Um, and I think I may have said this on your podcast in the past. I want to make uh, a hunting dog before I worry about making uh, a a trained bird dog. I, I don't care if the dog's ripping birds. I don't, I just want them to want them uh i i will often talk about making monsters before i try <laughs> to kill them. um and and then i also want you know i'm not i'm, I'm not going to repeat the anecdote i always drop here about my grandpa but i'll allude to it <laughs> i've just used it way too much but it, i do believe that if all we had access to were wild birds and we were smart about how we introduced the gun then we would never need to to essentially do anything else to train our dog except go hunting. Yeah, right. There's a reason these dogs have been selectively bred for this refined stalking instinct that is pointing for hundreds of generations, you know, and and that's what we've got. And so um, if it's a flusher, you take it hunting, you make sure it's broke to the gun and you shoot birds out for it and You've got a serviceable hunting dog. It may not do all the things you want it to do. There may be some safety concerns in the chase, um, which I'm sure we'll talk plenty about during this podcast. Uh, and the same with the pointing dogs. The pointing dogs are going to learn essentially as they come up on more and more elusive game that they need to be cautious around that game or it's going to leave when they pressure it too much. And that's what leads to pointing. Yeah. Um so that essentially in 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 a nutshell is kind of the getting started part. sorry, I kind of went down a little bit of a different <laughs> path there, but the value in woe in my opinion is uh is essentially either being able to put the brakes on during a chase, being able to put the brakes on if I know my dog is um unknowingly going into a situation that uh that it could either, you know, bump birds, uh, from upwind or something like that. Um, or just, you know, if it's going to come into a backing scenario that it doesn't see the other dog, here's, there's plenty of value in being able to stop that dog and not necessarily just recall them every time, but you know, that's, that's it essentially. Those are pros and cons, I guess.
0: And and you, you said a lot of things throughout that, that it's just like that there's like 10 different rabbit holes to jump through on that, but, but ultimately, one thing that I, I, I find interesting is interviewing these different people and these highly successful methods and trainers all on whoa. I've kind of asked everybody in their own words, what is woe? And, yeah. and it's like you, you're going to get one of two responses ultimately that people either saying that the dog is standing, just standing there, or to your point, stopping. It's yes. stopping moving their feet. It's it's one or the two, and it's really interesting to hear the language that people use and, and who dictates standing. But to your point, that's kind of the duration piece that you're talking. Is like just stand there, and, and that's that's woe. You put more of an emphasis on being able to put the brakes on and stop in motion, and that's your definition or, or criteria for woe. The next thing that stood out to me, <clears throat> which – you're, you're speaking my love language here is essentially go before woe, right? Yeah. That, yeah. You, you're trying to cultivate that relationship between dog and bird with as little influence with the handler as possible. And a lot of people, when they hear that, they think maybe check cord or a leash or, you know, putting your hands on a dog and holding them when they're on a bird. But essentially, if you train woe and, and you're injecting yourself in between that scenario between bird and dog – It doesn't have to be physical. You're still injecting yourself in the middle of that sequence. And that's why this woe is a fascinating topic to me on how everybody does something completely different. Because to me, I've seen more issues with people going too fast or getting to woe too early and taking kind of a hunt or a search out of a dog than I've seen somebody waiting too long to apply woe. Uh, Would you say that that's kind of a fair assessment?
1: Yeah I think um <clears throat> I'm not much of a timeline guy but I I do think from a young dog development or puppy development standpoint I think we hit some critical phases in a dog's life that we don't get back you know and so I don't want to ever be guilty of 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 diminishing some sort of valuable moment or, or not allowing for some valuable moment during a developmental period. And, and so for me, you know, when I think the first thing I think of developmentally is like, I want number one, I want a super environmentally stable dog. I want a dog that's comfortable in all environments and, and, the, the easiest way for me to accomplish that is just to turn them loose and let them explore the environment. And if I'm trying to exercise too much control, I'm not allowing for that. Now I think of everything that's going on in my training scenario as a part of the environment. That's the way my brain way, works. When I think of dog training, I think of myself as a part of the environment Absolutely. Uh, and, and the birds are the same. And so I, you know, I don't want to, I want to do the best I can early to not, um, manipulate the environment in such a way that it's that I'm creating something that's too artificial. Um, and, and something that's uh, creating expectations in my dog that, that aren't going to play out into the future. And, you know, so there's going to come a time where I absolutely begin to take more and more control over the environment with my young dogs. I'm going to do things to, to make them accustomed to certain, you know, environmental, um, stimuli i want them to drag leads and get comfortable you know wearing gear and and getting in and out of their crate but for the most part when they're on the ground you know i just want them i want them ripping and roaring i certainly want them looking for birds so i'm adding i am artificially adding birds to the environment i'm crippling birds i'm pulling wings and i'm, I'm like I said letting them just get after them and be excited about them and if they want to run away from me i don't care you know i'm not worrying about a retrieve i'm not out there doing anything some dogs are going to be possessive and some are going to try to eat the bird and some are going to run right back to you with a soft mouth and to me you know i don't um i don't place too much emphasis on what's going on in that moment there's plenty of time for me to worry about my retrieve and things of that nature there's plenty of time for point to be developed um if the dog's not pointing some dogs will go out there on a cripple burn point it relatively quickly they just have that's so deeply, deeply embedded in their DNA. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a better pointing dog than the dog that doesn't do it as quickly, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and I've seen plenty of dogs that took a little while to develop that point, turn into extremely staunch and cautious bird dogs. And I've seen some dogs that I've, I've rarely get, you're rarely going to see a dog that's just extremely full of point turn into a crazy bird ripper later unless you're just in, in some for, for some reason that's that's been you know um uh kind of triggered by something uh but i do worry about dogs that have an excess of point as really really young puppies in and potentially being a little environmentally sensitive um and having a, an abundance of caution that might not play out you know play out in their favor down the road so um that, that's
0: that, that's a really interesting point you know it not didn't mean to throw in the word sure. point <laughs> but uh that is really interesting in the sense of you know like you said the the the, the point is ultimately drawn back it, it it's uh it's before the pounce right and they're just trying not to scare it off and and to your point like if a young dog is going in and and they are really staunch at a really young age and and you're encouraging that you might be developing that dog that is a little more sensitive to anything changing within its environment which that can be reflected in actual wild bird hunting not just the training field that can kind of carry over to that would you say that you might see that on the opposite end of maybe the retrieve to where if they're too cautious or they have that really hard pointing instinct maybe they're they're a little more difficult to uh, fine tune on the retrieve.
1: I think it'd be a lot of fun to really collect some data on that um, because there there are more than a few exceptions to that rule. I've had some some very early pointing pointy pointy dogs that that with with not a ton of effort became great retrievers. That being said, I I definitely see a correlation between pointy pointy dogs. Um, and and maybe less desire to retrieve. Mm. Uh, so there's something you know there there's there's a balance in there, and I think just like humans, I mean, I think we have dogs. We you're going to have dogs out there that are super adaptable and very talented in many regards. You know, every once in a while, you get a you know a, a Mensa guy that uh, that is on a D1 athletic scholarship. You know, and then then you get people like me. You know, <laughs> that They're not gonna be accused of doing either of those things ever. You know, and so um and it's not just it's not just a competence thing either. It's just, you know, where do these where do these skills and talents line up? Um, you know, what what are their God given attributes? And and some of them got it all, some of them are gonna be, you know, great sprinters and not have a ton of stamina and some are going to be able to do it all, you know, and it's just the, well, the
0: way and, it is. And that kind of falls into why I have you on this podcast right now, trying to cover this this kind of strange topic after I just spent a number of episodes telling everybody how to train woe is, is maybe that there are some methods and some programs out there that, that convey or promote not teaching woe, and in, in, at least in the sense of woe that everybody knows, but like, when I talk to you, I always like talking about these type of topics because you don't have a set-in-stone method. You just said you don't apply to timelines. You truly just train the dog in front of you, and and it's kind of hard to communicate that to people because you, you can sit there for three or four hours at each person and try and explain to them what you would do with their dog, and nobody has the time for that. But ultimately we taught everybody says train the dog in front of you, train the dog in front of you. But then they'll literally right behind that say pick one method and stick with it. And so it's kind of a not a contradiction, but that there are certain elements that are kind of contradictory in that.
1: Sure. And I I mean, you know, and I don't have a problem with that. And I and I, I mean I see the value and and um in other methods, I, I think, you know, in, in, in methods in general, I, I I think of some of the more popular methods that I, that I don't employ. And there are brilliant trainers that are out there that are 100% dedicated to that method. And that, and they're intuitive, they're great. They know when to put, you know, hit the gas, and they know when to hit the brake, and they know when to, to be gentle with both. And, and, and they're going to be they're going to turn out good dogs and they're going to turn out good dogs from across the spectrum we we've, we've spoken about and um you know but i think if you for me personally um and i was lucky to come from a a completely different part of the dog training industry and i think that gave me a, a little different um vantage point perspective and so you know it was very natural for me coming in here to try and look at very broad concepts as opposed and as opposed to i'm just making a bird dog you know to me and today i still i just consider myself a dog trainer i want to be a good dog trainer mm-hmm. it doesn't mean i uh, i don't value being a good bird dog trainer but that's secondary that's a that's a kind of a a subsection what it is that i truly do which is i train dogs Mm -hmm. you know and and for the most part i train gun dogs and then beyond that i usually train pointing dogs you know and that's the way i that's my self-identity and um and so it's it kind of lends itself to not just picking a lane and staying in it forever it kind of goes you know what would you know what would a guy like you know ivan Blavnov who's a really famous for lack of a better way of putting it police dog type trainer what would he have to say about this situation what would he see if he was watching this um you know what would somebody from outside of our our little world how would they describe what they're seeing and what would their brain immediately do you know and so um you know to me that's that's you know the, at least my approach and I'm always thinking of you know what what why are these things happening what can i do to influence them to happen the way I want them to. And I have systems. I certainly do. And I mean, I, you could even accuse me of having a method in specific areas. I mean, I've, I get, I've gotten to the point and I think we all do this. You get comfortable and with doing things a certain way. And I'm hundred percent guilty of that. I mean, most of the dogs that come through here are going to see a similar track. It's, yeah. you know, they're not going to see the same track, but it's, you know, it, there's a comfort level with with kind of the way I've, I've, you know, it's kind of turned an end to its own thing. I hate, I, yeah. I would never call it that. <laughs> the The, <laughs> the
0: Grayson method. Well, and I mean, ultimately what you're talking about is, is adding variety and different tools in your toolbox, which we talk about all the time. That's why one of the reasons that one of my favorite things to do is kind of talk bird dog and hunting dogs, but talk about it front with somebody from the canine world or some, just an offbeaten path, not offbeaten, but maybe foreign to a lot of hunting dog people because there is truly a lot of value of kind of understanding dog training at its core is just dog training rather than just, I'm a part of this party or I'm a part of this method or, or what have you. Not to say that there's not any benefits to picking a method and staying with it, kind of like what, what you said and, and I talk about all the time, especially newbie and brand new people to where it's kind of drinking from a fire hose if you start trying to look at five or six different methods and pick which one's right for your dog it's like by all means simplify it, especially when when you're first starting out but you've even said in the past on, on the few times that you've been on you you loosely ascribe to the gibbons west method you you're not a true gibbons west junkie almost but you you are very similar to it in a lot of regards. And, and I, I would say, can you think of another method and, and tell me if I'm even off base on, on my understanding of it, because I'm not that, uh, dressed up on it quite yet, sure. but they, they talk about not teaching the dog. woe per se. And yeah. is there another method before we kind of get into what that means in the Gibbons West method? Is there another method that you know of to kind of include in this conversation to where they say, do not teach woe?
1: I guess I think, it, you know, personally, I don't I don't know of any. Uh, I, I, it, there are other methods that are probably trademarked that, you know, talk about being silent. And things of that nature. Um, th- it doesn't mean you're not teaching specific behaviors, you know. And and standing still and not moving. I mean, you have a woe post in that command or in that in that system or method. Um, so, it, I think when you look at what the West Gibbons method means when they talk about not teaching woe, it, in the broad concept is you know when I talk to most people that have spent a lot, a long time as West Gibbons trainers, I think most of them tend to have this similar career track where towards later down the road, even though they 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 always identify as Westies, for a lack of a better term, or like you know, devotees to the method. Um, I think they begin to recognize that there's that the method is is uh, is very fluid, and that it it should allow for one to to kind of make it their own. Um, and the, but the the general, the most important idea is that we're facilitating the the dog and the bird's relationship. You're letting the bird train the dog, and you'll hear that all the time with the Wes Gibbons method. You know, there's certain things that are kind of going to be hills people might die on. You know, for some it would be the check cord and the pinch collar, um, the, the the use of launchers from uh, from downwind of the dog, uh, things of that nature, and in, in which case and it's done very often. And there's they're teaching a dog to stop and stand there too, and they're teaching duration. So to say that they're not teaching woe would would be disingenuous to some you know, in, in some regard. So, uh, there's are you know, you're, just because you're not using the word, whoa, if you're teaching stop on command and don't move until released, I mean, you can call it whatever you want. You know, it's, it's essentially, whoa, but it's how it's employed. It's in, in what context is it employed? And I think that's the most important thing. And I think really what it comes down to for West is, um, and for, for Bill West, when, when we talk about West, we're talking in West Gibbons, we're talking about a man named Bill West, um, who, uh, you know, I want, I won't pretend to know uh, his whole backstory, but he, he's influenced a ton of people and, 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 uh, and thought held in very high regard by a lot of trainers and Mr. Gibbons, who was Bill Gibbons as well, um, both Western guys, um, uh, very similar. I think the the thing that makes the West method so cool is there's this uh, tradition of, um, uh, of mentorship. Uh, and it's not, it's not always as clean and tidy as people think it is. I mean, these guys really do have, even though Bill West is kind of the, the patriarch, everybody that's kind of come behind him has had their own spin on this thing. And n- nobody, uh, admonishes them to do otherwise, you know, once, you know, once they've proven that they're good, then nobody's saying, you're not doing it exactly the way he did it. So you, it can't be right, you know? And so there's room for that. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of them that, that would like the method to stay clean and pure. And I don't, and I, that's where I kind of differ from And That's why I don't like, I, I love the method. I love the tradition. I I would never call myself a West Gibbons trainer because I don't think I have the right to Mm -hmm. Because I don't think I practice the method purely enough to feel like, you know, until somebody gave me the ominous dominus, you know, that I would be comfortable telling the world that. So I know, again, way, way down a rabbit hole with that. But at the end of the day, um, it's, it's not a foundational piece of that. That puzzle in terms of just allowing for the facilitation of the bird dog relationship. Yeah, if that makes. Sense. Yeah,
0: and anybody that's throwing something in the truck trying to listen to this because you know the the West Givens method uh, people they they are very passionate about their method, and yeah. uh, it is on my list to explore in more detail. So you know if we, if we touch on something that doesn't sound right or, or feel right, just just stay tuned. I'll 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 get to it and. Uh, but you, you ultimately kind of hit the main point that I'm, I'm driving at, and, and you mentioned the Woe post, and I did the Woe post with Mark and Martha. You know them up at Webfoot, and uh, they're, they're a perfect example on this to where when you talk about ultimately, they may not name it, but they're still teaching Woe. They're still teaching the action, and that's what Mark and Martha talked about is that they're going through their entire program, and they're teaching Woe. And they're not naming it until the very end. And so, I mean, that is truly the last step, I think, if I remember correctly, what Martha said. Like, that is her last step is naming the action. And we talk about this all the time. It's not just in Woe. It's, it's in a whole bunch of things. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what people call free shaping. You teach the action. And then you name it after they learn the action and the expectations. So when people talk about, let's stick with the West Gibbons because we we couldn't think of another one. But like you said, there's other silent approach methods. Uh, when people say they're not teaching woe, you're just not naming it. You are teaching woe you, that there is an expectation and and boundaries on the manners on the bird that that you're overlaying. I mean, ultimately it's still the foundation of steadiness. You're just not naming it ultimately.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, and so I think most, especially if you're talking to obedience or um, protection types, very commonplace that you will hear And Karen Pryor's, I think this was actually in one of her books, who's a famous clicker trainer um, and, and uh, a kind of a uh, leader in the purely positive movement, but the, the you'll hear the phrase, don't name it till you love it. Thrown around a lot. I mean, <laughs> create create the behavior, com, you know, completely and precisely, and then add the cue. by then uh, that's the naming it, and and because and, and there's many ways to, to think about it. But if I'm using a reward based system, I'm going to create the entire behavior and when it's time to add the cue, it's just going to predict the reinforcer. So whether that be compulsive or whether it be from a reward-based perspective, none of that changes. So for me personally, if I'm teaching a dog to stop and stand, they're very comfortable on a check cord. They're very comfortable with a pinch collar on their neck. The pinch collar is rarely, rarely used as an aversive. Um, And I've got launchers in the field and, All of the birds are downwind of the dog if we can control for that. And we're just going to start having some early stop to flush type work happening. And we're just basically restraining the dog. And then that's where duration begins to happen. But the cue to stop becomes the flush, right? And so it's the cue, the bird goes up, you're not going to be able to chase it. You've you've had tons of chase in your life. You might as well just stand there and enjoy watching it. And now I can correct for duration or I can begin to slowly add the corrections for duration in um, as that becomes a a more natural behavior, more common behavior for that dog. Um, And then I will begin to predict that flush with a series of anything. For me, the first nonverbal thing I'm going to do is just give a slight tug on that collar. It's not to create any sort of discomfort. It's just a signal telling you that flush is coming. And so we go from flush to restrain to just let them watch to tug, flush, tug, flush, tug, flush, tug. And that dog swells up and anticipates that flush. And so the idea is you get a stop in motion with a lot of style. Hopefully if that dog is excited about birds flushing in in the distance to some extent, if they're not, then you got work to go back and do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you can layer any number of cues to that. So it could be a collar cue. It could be a little Nick that predicts your tug low level enough that it would be hard to even consider it a punisher, you know, but your Nick predicts your sense. Now you've gone from tug, flush, tug, flush, tug, flush, tug to Nick, tug, flush, Nick, tug, flush, Nick, tug, flush, Nick, tug, flush, Nick, flush, flush, right. Or just Nick. And we're stopping and standing. And then now all that's good. We've got tactile cues. Um, And, and to me, Anything tactile is going to override anything else. So, and then it would go nonverbal visual. So you now you're watching me, you're watching my body language. And then from there, it would be verbal to me as the weakest form of communication. So the reason we add it last is because if I do it simultaneously, if I go, whoa, as I'm tugging, whoa, as I'm tugging, whoa, as I'm tugging, and then I take the the tug out, the woe is, has no power because it was always done in conjunction with the tug and the tug was your primary reinforcer or your t- your primary cue. And if it predicts the tug, then it holds up because they're anticipating the next thing down the line as opposed to just feeling that first, that primary cue, if that makes sense, hopefully. Yeah. So, so we're teaching people on my no woe podcast with you how to teach woe in the West. <laughs> money, right? But again, it's, you know, I think the, the really important part of that is what context is it being used in? Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so I do want to go down that, that how to ultimately, like you said, is, yeah. is we've already covered, essentially, we are teaching well, we're just, we're just not naming it uh, sure. in, in this, in this instance. But <clears throat> let, let's rewind and go through all that again, because I guarantee you people are, are hitting back a few times trying to keep up with that, because I, I love that it was just like, it was a really high speed, you just told everybody. Essentially, how to tr- train your dog whoa on on the West Gibbons method in in five seconds, whatever it was. Um, let's let's back up because you said you don't believe in a timeline. When you're yeah. going into this process, what are the prerequisites for for Grayson to determine the dog is ready for the for this? happen. You know, we're, we're about to teach woe. Again, we're not naming it, but we're about to teach it. You said that you, at first, you're letting the puppy be a puppy, go before woe, whatever you want to call it, n- yeah. you know, nurture the relationship. What are the prerequisites for you to say this puppy or this dog is ready for this training?
1: So first, I think it's it would be important uh, to for this thought experiment to assume that this is my puppy and I've had this puppy since eight weeks. And so I picked my puppy up. The first thing, only thing I'm concerned with at that point is it's health and safety. So we're making sure, you know, whatever that means, if it's vaccinations, if it's getting on a good warming schedule, waiting for it to mature well enough to be able to get it out and just put it down on the ground. Then, you know, I I happen to be lucky enough to my house backs up to 170 acres um, of just row crop type farmland with a lot of, cover types, creeks, rocks, whatever. And so I'm out with my kid and we're playing with the dog and we're introducing other dogs. And that puppy is just experiencing the world. That's the most important thing. If you're not starting with a well-adjusted, social, confident, um, you know, uh um, environmentally stable dog, then you're, then you're already kind of starting behind the A ball. And and so I see a lot of people that want to put the cart before the horse in that regard. Um, You know, the puppy, the puppy, you know, it's much more important that you throw that thing in the truck and you carry it, you know, as soon as it's capable and, you know, after 12 weeks, after 16 weeks, whatever your vet tells you, because some are going to give you a different story and uh, I don't want to, I would never disagree with your personal vet right just do whatever he tells you as far as taking the dog out in town or she tells you regarding taking the dog out in town and do that then take it everywhere you possibly can expose it to everything you possibly can and not every puppy is going to be confident but it's important that you give them the opportunity to be as confident a puppy as they're going to become so we've gotten past that Um, now we know that our puppy is comfortable walking around with us off leash they're in contact with us i think this is something that often gets missed you know, you can hang that check cord off your puppy. It's probably going to be too early to collar condition, um, and so you've got to take that leap of faith and drop that check cord in the right environment every once in a while. Because if that puppy's never been off lead, and the first time it ever gets off lead is at to training day, you you might have your work cut out. For yeah, you. yeah. Uh,
0: a lot of dogs, a you know. lot of people, a lot of trucks, a lot of lot yeah. of everything at a to training day.
1: And a lot of times too, or even if it's going hunting, you know, if you got, now you got a six month old, seven month old, this beginning there's a little bit of sexual maturity happening thing, you know, they don't, they've never had to learn how to be in contact with you and now they don't understand that I call it team proprioception where my dog, you know, if you've got your finished dog and and you're hunting with your, you know, maybe somebody, a new, new person, and they're like, how can your dog be at 200 yards over a ridge, you know, in thick cover and you're not even looking at your handset at all. You're not concerned with where it is um, because I know my dog knows where I am, you know, and I, I, I'm not worried about that dog losing. I know when my some dogs can be in contact and I never see them, you know, 10, 15 minute spans. Some dogs are going to check in and then um, there are certain things we're going to do that are going to to reinforce that if we want it. personally, it's not that big a deal to me. I just see some have a greater propensity to do it than others. But you need to have the confidence that your your dog is in contact with you, and there's no better way to do that than start as a young puppy. Um, They'll figure that out at that point. They're not going to want to leave your side, and they're going to go from – from not being adventuresome to becoming more independent and more adventuresome, and but always doing it in a naturally progressive way that they're they're they know where, they know where you are and they want to be with you.
0: You're kind of setting that expectation from day one and, and yeah. cultivating it to where, like you said, I get this ass all the time. I'm like, I'm afraid to take the the puppy off off leash, and it's like, how old is your puppy? And it's ten weeks. I'm like, a ten week old puppy is going to stay by you. Just, just, just let them off, go in a field, be safe about it. You know, don't go walking down a sidewalk on a busy street and do it. But, you know, that puppy is going to stay with you. And then, then it's just like you said, you're just going to kind of walk it on up. And then the dog doesn't know any better by the time it's six, seven months old.
1: And and I'm sure there's some ten week old puppy out there that'll <laughs> run over the ridge line, you know. And yeah. uh, it's it's really really rare, you know. If you you know if if it, if it's something that concerns you, I don't do this, but I would I would suggest it start in a controlled environment. Start at a, at your local baseball field, whatever. You know, if you feel like you need to have a confined space, use a fenced yard. You know, mm-hmm. and and just get comfortable with your dog. Um, but beyond that, then you need to begin to explore that greater environment, you know, leash, you know, for me, I don't really put too much. I don't really walk dogs on a lead until probably sometime after teething for the most part, but they are wearing a check cord. They are going to know what it feels like to have back pressure against their neck. They're not going to be confused by it, but I don't really, I'm certainly not starting healing. Um, and I'm not, I'm not requiring a dog to walk on a slack lead until uh, I've got a mature enough dog that already under is willing to give me back pressure on a check cord. And so it also aggravates me to no end to walk a dog on lead and have a tight lead. Mm -hmm. So I just don't expect it and I don't ask for it. So I just never put them in that, in that context, you know, so, so for me yet those young puppies are, they're not going to be on a wonder lead. They're not going to be on a, a, a prong collar or choke chain, um i might hang if they're really mature i might hang a pinch collar off their neck and let them drag their check corner around by that and just just to feel the sensation and i may even hold it on occasion but really let them you know never let them shock the end of the line never uh never correct them in any way on it just get comfortable with that back pressure get comfortable leading me into the field with that thing on because it's not an obedience tool for me you know it's uh It's simply it's simply a a way for me to feed you information um, from the other end of the line when that that time comes. So we've got now we've got this dog, this puppy that can go can go out, experience things independently. And that's when my bird intro starts, Um, you know, and so I'll go out. I always want to show them a bird from the hand. I like to start with live birds. I'm not much on showing them dead birds because I, I don't want them. To, I don't want them to develop some sort of disinterest. You know, I don't want to show them something that's not going to trigger prey drive. Yeah. You know, just because it's a bird and it's, it, if it's dead and frozen, you know, it may not unlock that, that thing in their brain. That instinct. That, yeah, monster,
0: that monster instinct that you're talking about.
1: Yep. And so, so I take bird intro really seriously, but I also, like, I never get discouraged if I do see a dog that's a bit worrisome. And I, I think, You'll see you're more inclined to see that with dogs that aren't confident, haven't experienced the world the way we've been talking about. Um, And so I always have Althea at the ready, you know, behind the fence, which is my lab. And she can go retrieve any birds that run off the field. We can restrain the puppy if they're showing a little disinterest in the bird and let the puppy watch her go pick them up or we can even have her out there playing with the puppy with that bird to create a little bit of friendly competition. It's a, it's a safe, safe dog that is, uh, is completely neutral to other dogs and she will let a puppy steal a bird out of her mouth, you know? And so it's important to have that. But most of the time I'm going to show you a bird from my hand. Uh, for me personally, I'm going to break the wings of the humerus, uh, both wings. So there's no flogging involved. Um, and I'm gonna let that puppy come sniff it and show a little bit of interest. I'm just gonna set that bird on the ground and let it run away, and it's gonna hop and try to get away from the puppy. And hopefully, the puppy's gonna chase and not be afraid of it, but it might be. So, now, and this might be a little too detailed. So, no, nah, so.
0: nah, it's great because I, I, not to knock you off too much course, but I've actually gotten some feedback from some, some people when I've talked about bird intro, and I, and I tell everybody, my. I'm, I'm the same as you. I don't take any chances on gun intro or bird intro. And bird intro, I, I start with a dominating the bird kind of s- situation that you're describing, build that confidence up. And and ultimately what it is is the people that, that write in and say, like, you're being overly cautious. They've never, it's probably not their dogs. It's never been my dog, but they've never helped enough people to come across the dog that is reluctant to check out that bird and and then like you said one r- ill-timed wing flap in the eye or something that can that can cause months of buildup up on a, on a young dog and so it's like yes there are fine lines in this to where you can be too cautionary but in, in your experience <laughs> as, as many dogs as you've put your hands on it does happen right like I mean it's not one of those we're not being too overly cautious
1: no, and I've I've watched young pups go out there and and be scared to death of birds. I've, I've watched them go sniff them and walk right past them. Um, and, and I've watched them jump on them and maul them. I've watched them go pick them up and retrieve them straight to hand. I mean, I've seen the whole spectrum of what a first-time bird intro can look like, you know. And um, what I would say to anyone that said I'm being overly cautious is I would much rather put my time in there uh, than to put it in. Rehabbing a blinking or a gun-shy dog, you know, later.
0: 100%, yes.
1: So, um, and and I think I'm, every time I'm allowing that chase, every time my puppy's mauling that bird and becoming that monster, it's money in the bank in in terms of of drive, in terms of desire, and, you know, toughness and grit and predatory nature. That means, hey, man, if I... If I, if you accidentally shock the end of that line and at the wrong time, if I, if I mess up and give a collar correction at the wrong time, there's something in there that, that, that piggy bank's full. And, you know, I'm, I'm making a withdrawal (laughs) when I give you an ill-timed correction, but I've made enough deposits to keep you engaged and keep you forward. And, and, you know, you have a relationship with that bird. You're not going to immediately draw an association between um, between a, a, Bad experience, and uh, and that bird, yeah, you know. And so that's that's most. I would never dream of bringing the gun in until I had a bird-hating, bird-crazy <laughs> young. Mom, you yeah. know, you yeah. Know? And then what comes next.
0: Well, I was about to say. So speaking of which, I'm assuming that's what comes next after you create that that bird-hungry monster that you're after.
1: Yeah, and I I like to use I use um, uh, what's known as an agitation whip normally. To just introduce some some audit, uh you know auditory stimulus uh, while the pup's out there, and sometimes when they're chasing the bird, I'll very lightly crack that whip and just see, I'm looking to see just a little bit of sensitivity. If they just acknowledge what is that thing, and I mean I'm talking light; it's not even close to uh, the sound of a gunshot. And if I recognize that, um, you know, we lay obviously lay way back, but it just is okay. This is something I I need to be aware of. Uh, But when that bird's really crazy, then I move everything to the front. We restrain that dog from the rear. And I'm going to, whatever I need to do, you know, starting with the whip, I usually put either somebody behind me or somebody in front of me throwing the bird. We crack the the whip and that predicts the throw of the bird. So it's very light crack throw. So they're going to have seen the bird thrown from the front and it's going to be a a compromised bird of some sort. so usually it's going to be, hey, 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 throw the bird. Hey, 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 throw the bird. I always want some kind of noise to predict it so I can get the dog's attention. So now I go, hey, 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 somebody cracks that whip, now I throw the bird. Now the whip is predicting the throw thrown bird. So now what I'm hoping is very quickly, not only is my dog associating that noise with this dopamine dump of chasing this bird down, Um but that noise is predicting that dopamine dump. So now I can actually use that to trigger this state of mind that I'm looking for.
0: So you're literally making gunfire fire that dog up. So you're, yes. you're shooting the, the, the whip in this case, but you're shooting the gun and you're that monster inside that dog is coming out to where it's it, just like it knows that bird is there because you've you fired off the the whip or gun.
1: Yep. So the gun, and, and this is a natural occurrence in hunting, right? Yeah. The, the gunshot predicts the fall of the bird oftentimes. Um, but I, doing it with intent, I think matters. And so, yeah, I mean, so for now, that gunfire is going to trigger that that dump, that dopamine dump. It's going to create that little monster that wants to go get that bird. Down the road, we're going to neutralize it so that the gunfire doesn't have that effect. Um it may it may style your dog up, but it's not gonna it's not gonna say hey express all of your crazy inhibitions right now you know and that's but that's what we're telling our puppies that It's okay yeah so once that's once that's going down with that once that's all good we're we're running on birds we're either you know we've gotten through blank gun to shotgun whatever out there throwing those birds um, puppy now is loose on the ground and we're out uh, you know, maybe, depending on the dog, bumping more compromised birds or bumping uncompromised birds and shooting some for them. You know, but it just depends on the dogs and And so if that that puppy's getting a little too rangy for me, or if I've got my monster that I'm looking for and in every other regard, i'm I'm happy with where the dog is, then i'm that's probably where I'm going to take a break from bird gun work, and we're going to go collar condition. And so now I'm going to put a handle on this dog. And for me, that's normally about a two-week process, give or take. It could be, you know, a month-long process depending on a dog. It's rarely faster than two weeks, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just want to hit all the checks like everything else. And so uh, I won't go through my entire collar conditioning process, but it, it's built around a recall for okay. the most part. I'm not doing any static work. I want the dog – the most important thing to me, and this is one place that you're going to – I think it is important to acknowledge uh, this is where I'm going to diverge from a lot of mainstream training programs is that continuous pressure will always mean to my dog, make action. Um, It can be away from me. It can be towards me. It can be anything at first, but when you feel constant pressure, the way to make that stop is to do something. And that to me is really important. And so if we're talking other methods where constant pressure means plant your feet, stop moving, when I get dogs that have come from those methods, this is something I need to acknowledge because it can be very, very confusing to the dog. Um, for me, static pressure is often going to mean stop action. So, but for me, what I want that dog to understand from from a collar conditioning perspective is number one, the collar's neutral; it's it doesn't it doesn't have any ill intent towards you. You don't need to be afraid of it. It's a normal part of your life. You have the power to employ it or to turn it off. So whatever your action does, controls the collar. And when you feel it, do something for now. So it's always going to be continuous when I'm doing my collar conditioning. And the one thing I want you to do is point your nose at me and make action in my direction. And as soon as you do that, I'm off the collar pressure. Now I do that in a big fenced area and I'm comfortable with you moving like that. Now we're out in the broader world, no birds still. I don't want you in drive. So I want to be able to manipulate you. I want to make sure that recall is super strong out of drive before I start putting you in drive and doing it. And so then when the bird intro, when we do a, a re bird introduction after collar conditioning, I'm doing that in a controlled space. I don't want to do that in Woodcock cover where I can't see <laughs> 15 feet, you know what I mean? Yeah. So and then when I say controlled, it's not necessarily, sometimes it's in a fenced area, depending on the dog. Sometimes it's in just a big open field where I can see forever. And I know the bird's going to fly And Sometimes it's a pigeon thrown from hand. So I know it's going to peel off and, and get away from you. Um, just depends on on the dog in that regard. But as soon as I can, now we're out hunting. Now I got a handle on you. You know what a bird is, and I can shoot a gun over you. And now the birds can become more and more elusive. And so, um, to, it, is this a good point for me to continue moving forward?
0: Yeah, I was about to say, is this, I mean, it's, you, you're pretty much just hitting your, your checkbox. You know, everything that we talk about is, you know, it's, woe is, the kind of the foundation of steadiness. Well, you don't get to steadiness without doing the foundation to everything else. And so you just kinda of walk through your your foundation on on everything ultimately. And this is your prerequisites. This is what I asked for. So you're 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 headed right there. I'm 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 enjoying the ride right now, man. <laughs> all right.
1: So now I can hunt you and now all the birds become elusive. And so now it's really important that I never put you in a situation where, and now, if you, I mean, cat caught birds are going to happen, but I'm going to do everything in my power um, to mitigate you catching a bird on the ground. So all of my birds got to, they've got to come from people I, you know, game farms I trust to give me very strong, healthy and spooky flighty birds. And there's not many out there. So that's, you, mm-hmm. doing research on that part is really important. Um, I don't do bird work between may and september pretty much as a rule so i usually quit the end of april and pick back up again the first of september
0: is that because of the heat humidity the sending conditions what
1: what all the cycle, yeah it's all it's all there i mean if you're living in the southeast yeah. you know if i if i was up north somewhere i mean it might, that might be different especially like on the prairie with, with the wild birds that would be great but i don't travel yeah. i got a family i don't you know i'm not a traveling dog trainer um so for me that's the time of year I force fetch and do water work. Everything else is my bird work time of year. And I and I will even put, you know, I really like to stack my young dogs into the meat of the bird season where I know I'm gonna have the best cover and the best birds. Um, because as you get deep into spring, everything gets green and dense. Um in September as it can be just as hot as any other month of the year, you know. Yeah. And so um so what I want is you know, it's nice, cool days with strong birds and 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 light cover, and uh, and what I mean by light cover is I will take. I got a Johnny house that sits in an open pine stand with just some blackberry and you know whatever other understory is very lightly growing in there. A bush hogged uh, some lanes through those pines for us to run on and. Most of my intro, that phase of bird work is happening in there. And, um, and it's, I, they're going to see the bird on the ground. They're going to smell it first. It's rare in the woods with a Bob White that a dog's unless that bird is just out in the open running around, which it rarely does, um, that dog's almost never going to get the visual indicator first. So they're going to hit it with their nose. They're going to pause. They're going to see it. They're going to run it up. Repeat that process forever. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um. And, you know, that's where I'm going to see how cautious they can become. Some dogs will pretty early start handling a walking bird on their own with no pressure. And uh, and some as soon as most are going to start really stopping on their nose. Well, and they're going to see them. They're not going to move, but those eyes are going to be scanning. They're looking for where that bird is. And when they catch it, they're gone every once in a while that bird's going to find the right place to hide and that dog's not going to get an eye on it and it's going to hold up and it's going to let me get around and as long as it lets and this is the successive approximation part which i know i think i discussed in the last time let me get closer and closer it may be i may be 15 feet away from you the first time you rip a bird and i might even shoot it for you but you let me get there you know tomorrow i need to get 10 feet and the next day I need to get five feet and now I need to get around in front, you know, and, and and so we're just shooting handle birds. This is still, we haven't talked launchers. We haven't done anything else. You're just learning to be a bird dog. And you, you know, as long as you're not running them down and catching them and picking them up off the ground, I'm not worried about what chase is reinforcing at this point in time, you know, and this is where a lot of people are like just beating on their steering wheel and like, you know, Cussing me up and down, <laughs> but but the, this is the closest I can get with pen raised birds to approximating a wild bird scenario. It's not the same. Yeah, I don't would never pretend it was. I don't. You know, it's not what it is. But especially if I'm expecting my young dog to to be trained and to be effective on pen raised birds later in life then I need to expose them to this thing. And so as soon as I get the dog where I think it's given me, it's expressing, it's giving me what it has to give me in that scenario. So whether it be staunch until it's visualizing the bird, watching a walking bird, or even if it's just like pausing and ripping a bird and I've seen enough of it to go, okay, it's not going to get any better. We're moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I put that away and we go into the training lab which is my, you know, acre and a half, two acres. I got a couple of those around the farm um, and launcher setup time, you know. And so, of course, I've done a launcher intro before this, which yeah. is, you know, for me means setting a compromised quail by a launcher and letting a dog find it and doing that until it, I don't see any novelty around the launchers. Um, and then I'll put a, a launcher out in the open field. And I'll walk the dog in, Uh, and it really doesn't matter if it's from upwind or downwind, in my opinion, as long as the launcher is exposed, we get to whatever proximity I feel like is safe that's not going to spook the dog in any way, and I launch a compromised pigeon um, and let them deal with that. And so now they've seen this. This thing is not nothing new to them. And
0: when you say compromise, are you talking about a winged pigeon, a, a a shackled pigeon, something to where it shoots it up, and then the dog gets a reward for playing with the bird, or whatever? I like the action. Yeah,
1: I want to. Yeah, yeah, usually I'm pulling flight feathers. I want to see that thing go up and fly. And at this point, I'm expecting this pup, this young dog, to be able to handle a flogging from a pigeon. I yeah. wouldn't do this to a dog I didn't expect to be able to handle that. And uh, yeah, I want to see the bird get up, be really animated get the dog excited, come back down. Now I got my launcher in play, you know what it is. And now for me personally, rarely am I ever running launcher setups without a check cord and a pinch collar. And, and the reason for that is it allows me to control the environment. So if I'm going to use my launcher and use it effectively, I need certain things to happen a specific way. And that, and, and if, if you know, if I just cut you loose in my field with my launcher, and you come in from upwind to that launcher, I can do one of two things: I can let you run by it, hopefully not recognize it, not get too close to it, um, or I can launch it based on your proximity to that thing. Um, you know, personally, I want to. I want concepts. I want. I want these puppies, young dogs grasping concepts at this point and so to me it's just i'm gonna make it pretty simple for them by putting them on a check collar and using that check collar to get them uh it in the you know to the right part of the field i want them perpendicular to a scent cone for the most part
0: and and you're not worried for those people that are talking about well if you're if you're quote unquote guiding or whatever with the check cord you might take the hunt or the search out. You're not worried about that because you've literally built that monster that you're talking about at the fir- front end. Yeah. And, and ultimately yeah. what we're talking about here, this is a great example of if you don't build that monster on the front end and you just start with this right here and you start slapping a, a, a check cord on it, that's when you can start taking something out of that dog search and drive in the field.
1: Yeah. They begin to anticipate. I mean, if you are just, if all that dog's ever seen and this goes for just being loose on the ground too, you know, it's, it's really important when the dog's starting to learn to hunt that you're not, you're not handling that bird to its dog or that dog to its birds. You know, and I, I do a lot of walking by birds that I know where they are um, because I want that dog to be out there finding them on their own. It's more important. I I would never start launch work without a hunting dog. Mm -hmm. You gotta be, willing to go and excited to go actively hunt birds. And so when I'm on launchers, I'm not teaching a hunt anymore. I'm giving you, this is what it means to be staunch. This is what staunch looks like. And, and to me, anything prior to the flush, I consider staunch. Um, And steadiness is for things that are happening after the flush for the most part, or, you know, watching other scenarios play out in the field. Um, You know, so if, you know, when I have that young dog and now we're we're playing launcher games, I get you across. Uh, I want to get right with the wind and I, w- I want you to be in the in the correct place in, in regards to space and time. And I want you leading me. So this is where it's important on the pinch collar that now I, I've got a hold of the check cord, check cord. My, like mine are like 10 feet long. I don't you don't need a whole bunch. This is, but I want you and, and some West Gibbons people will refer to it as doing the dance. I want you to be comfortable out front. You're not worried about me. You've got, you're not afraid to put back pressure on this collar. You're not dragging me, but you're leading, the dog is leading the dance through the field. The trainer is in a very subtle way, helping the dog get to the right place if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so the right place is depending on the wind, you know, maybe 15 feet from a launcher hit that scent cone just perpendicular. And if it's the almost, and I don't care how pointy a dog is, if it's the first time they hit that scent cone on that launcher, as soon as they throw their head, I'm launching the bird. Yeah. So any head whip, you know, and I'm creating, I'm going to create or I'm going to attempt to create an abundance of caution around the launcher more than I worry about with the loose birds on the ground. This is my opportunity to show you everything you do might create the flush. So you need to be very aware of your body in space and time as the dog, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and and reiterate the wind direction. The setup on the launcher is is paramount on this because you have to be able to see that change of behavior in that dog to make sure – that dog got wind of that bird, right? You know, yep. and that's why you set it downwind and that's why you go perpendicular. You know where it is, but you're not guiding the dog into the bird. You're guiding it into the scent ultimately.
1: Yes. And I want to hit that thing at, with a, at a 90 degree angle. Yes. Every time. If I can, if I can do that, it's, it's the way I want it to happen. Southeast hilly terrain <laughs> swirling um, swirling wind it's I, I mean i i it's the bane of my existence Ch- yeah. chasing the wind you know and um uh but you know in my training lab every patch of cover i have 360 degree access to so oftentimes it's how i approach the field so even if i'm not sure of the wind i'm working in such a way that the, I'm gonna, I Now I'm comfortable and, and I've done, done it long enough that I feel like even with most dogs, I can see a just noticeable difference when they first hit odor. Some are going to be soft. Some are going to be hard. Sometimes the wind's going to be super dead. Sometimes you actually have to count on fluid dynamics to carry sent down a hill, mm-hmm. which is... Which is weird, or think of pulling if the odor is pulling in vegetation away from the launcher. I mean, these are things that it's pretty te- technical stuff that you uh, get it, a little
0: it, it matters. Once you start yeah. figuring out if you plan in the shade and that scent is going to pull up and kind of drift into the sun, you know, convert against the wind almost, it, it's yeah. surprising when you start pointing that out to people in the training field. <clears throat> it's like they've never really pieced that together or observed it. And once you start getting a better understanding of how to place the birds and and put them, the launchers, into where, like you said, it's going with the thermals or it's coming in and out of the sun or or wind, you can really start planting the birds and good objectives and good hunting cover. To to where you're actually getting like good quality reps. Not to jump ahead, I don't know if that's what you're doing here, but no, it's uh, no, it's
1: absolutely. And the, well, then, and the more experience you have doing this, then the more intuitive it can become. Right. But it, but it will surprise you, and it's still, and I'm still surprised by it. You know, and and uh, every once in a while, I mean, I'm I'm where I think the sink cone should be, and it's not there. You know, or the you know with the dog, I know that would know. You know, And, yeah. and so, but the but the general idea here is. And again, we're just talking our way through milestones. I mean, this is not a method, you know, I mean, this, and this could differ and this, this may take me a long time to get to. It may, I may be doing this with an eight month old puppy, or I may be doing this with a three year old dog, you know, and, and, um, but odds are this is going to happen at some point. And, and, and what I want to see the entire objective of, of launch work, in my opinion, in this phase of training is for the dog to recognize that its actions influence the bird. And that's why, hey, smell that, get really cautious, stand still, and don't move. And now I can add duration and distraction. I can get around front. I can start shooting the gun out of order. I can do all. I Now want to make my bomb-proof little dog in this launcher lab, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, I'm, and, I'm
0: digging it. And so reiterate again, you know, uh, we kind of we kind of swerved a second ago when you are talking sure. about how you come in perpendicular, dog smells yeah. it and you're launching that bird. Remind me again because at, at the start of this you talked about how you're gonna tug and then it's gonna launch. So as soon as that uh, are we doing that right now? kind yeah, of so
1: we're down so as long as I'm downwind of the bird, there's no influence the only influence you get from me is I'm not it's just being on the end of the check cord. I'm not giving you any feedback. If you're going to be downwind of the bird, the only time I'll ever do this, that tug type work is if I'm upwind of the, uh, of the launcher, um, with the dog. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to, that's going to be getting into stop to flush and that's teaching whoa and all that stuff. There's no, if you're smelling a bird, I'm not stopping you. So if that dog chooses to run, my only course or recourse is to launch the bird. Now, at some point down the road, I may not, you know, I may require that that dog not chase or, Chase that bird, but as a young dog, no. You, I want you to chase it. Yeah. If you're not chasing it hard enough, I'm gonna shoot you another one out of the launcher, <laughs> you know. And 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 so I want you to want it, but I also want you to believe that you you're not going to access it by rushing it. And so so the the best way to get what you want is to stand perfectly still and hold hold your horses. And I'm not, that's not disciplinary. That's only between you and the bird and the launcher in in this at this yeah. time.
0: And so ultimately, we're downwind. So you're you're again teaching the dog to be cautionary around the scent. You're you're working them into the scent, and then that woe stuff is coming later. You, you're not even working on that right now. So when, no, I'm not
1: yeah, no, when, woe, woe stuff is finish work. You yeah. know, it's not.
0: And, and that's it, what I'm getting to. Is is, yeah. is you're teaching manners around the the bird. You're teaching the dog to be cautionary around the bird without even having woe in the toolbox right now.
1: And I'm not saying words. I mean, I'm not, I'm not influencing, I'm not using the check cord or the pinch collar to ever do anything. I mean, you, most times once the dog starts to show me that they can establish a relatively strong point on a launcher, I drop the check cord immediately. I, I, now I, I want you to feel that I'll start moving around again, adding distraction. I want you to move. I want you to lose your bird. So you learn a lesson, <laughs> um, you know, and, and so, uh, and and, and I'll, Oftentimes, I'm going to get a lot out of these. I'm going to be up front. I'm going to be around the dog. And then I also am going to come in and I'll start physically. I like to put hands on the dogs. So I'll start physically manipulating the dog. I might push you just a step. And if you take that step, if I push you, push you, push you, and you lose balance and you step, launch the bird. (laughs) So now, right, I come in and just my presence, instead of you looking over your shoulder like, is this guy going to kick my ass? Now... I, my presence creates more focus from you. You're going, Oh no, this guy's about to disrupt me. He's going to make me lose. I'm going to get tense up and focus on my bird, you know? And so and that really plays well for you in the test games and the trial games, as opposed to having that dog that begins to feel that competition of you moving in on the bird, your presence actually locks them down, Mm. you know? And, um, and and that, in my opinion, comes from adding all so the distraction and the
0: th- touch. That's that's a really good point because you hear all the time to where my dog is staunch until I enter the picture and then it oh. wants to break as soon as I enter the picture. And so just that first step of getting that flush, like you said, you're you're kind of getting the dog to staunch up because it's before the flush, like you just talked about, because you came in within the picture.
1: Yeah. And it only matters if the dog cares about losing its bird, cares about the flush. Right. Right. So none of this is happening until my dog's hitting that odor, stopping on odor and choosing not to move. If I've got a dog that I take in on check cord and it just hangs a right with the odor and runs at the launcher every time, then we'll do that however many times it takes for that dog to slow down. Yeah, it, it's It would be, I would say, The the percentage of dogs that are not going to become staunch without pressure, in my opinion, are not irrelevant, but would be fodder for an entirely different podcast. It's just so few of them. Right. right. But yeah, you're going to have a percentage that just don't care. And they're just going to rip for that bird every time. But most people that think that's what they got haven't put the time and effort into getting to to this point. Yeah. you know, and I'm, when I say time and effort, I mean I'm not afraid to go out every day for two weeks and do this very similar setup. And if my dog wants the launcher bad enough that it's conti- willing to continuously rip towards the launcher, then I'm not worried about its drive. I'm not affecting its drive by doing launcher work every day for two weeks. It wants it, so I'm right. I'm in it. And um, and
0: but, you you just brought up a point. You know, something that I've I've said a number of times throughout the years on this podcast is you know I could make the point. Uh, and we have multiple times, to where steadiness is more pressure on a dog than force fetch. And oh, for sure. I, I, I mean, in a lot of ways. And so, like, that's a very good point for people to wrap their heads around to where so many people are scared to attempt force fetch because they think it's too much pressure or because of the, the nomenclature, the word force. Well, you go put that same dog in the field, and it can crack under pressure in the field if, if not approached the right way.
1: Yeah. And well, and then that's, and what are, what are the signals you've given this dog? You know, my dogs, hopefully don't see me as a threat to them physically in the field. Right. At this point, mm-hmm. they're not, when I come in, they're not worried about a correction. They're worried about losing their bird. Yeah. And, and, and so when we talk pressure, it's, you know, now we get into, I'll use the term perceived pressure a lot. I'll, and usually when I'm saying perceived pressure, I'm I'm talking about a dog that should be stand, staying put. And now we got walking birds and we got other dogs and we've got, you know, and so now we've got all these things that are too much for the dog to bear. Um, it's a lot of pressure when you're at a field trial and you end up with a walking bird and a bracemate that rips your bird and another handler screaming at their dog. <laughs> um, and so so we've essentially created – you know, hopefully this, this really tough, staunch kind of bomb proof dog that doesn't require a uh, disciplinary obedience to stand their bird in a launcher. And, and once that's happened, once I'm confident that I have that, once I feel like I've added all the distraction I need to um, we're back to loose birds on the ground. And this is where you're going to see some of that. You're going to take a step back. This is the nonlinear part. So, great you've shown me your staunch on a pigeon and a launcher um now i take you, i throw you back down especially with a visual stimulation of that quail running in the woods but you've proven to me that you understand the concept of what it means to be staunch and at that point i feel that i have the ability to fairly correct anything that's not staunch and and here's the important part of that is I'm still never going to pressure you before the flush, but now I'm going to teach you to manage your chase. Mm-hmm. If I have a dog that understands what it means to be staunch and then believes that it needs, it truly must wait for a release in order to chase. Rarely are you going to have a dog that's willing to creep lunge any other way flush a bird off the ground, they're out there. We're talking low percentage dogs that are willing to flush a bird just to watch, watch it fly away. Once, uh, once they truly understand what it means to be staunch, but most people don't have that dog. That that takes a pretty tough dog to be that, to want to be that dog. Um, And so managing chase is I think the most important step in the process. I'm going to I just want to teach the dog it's okay to chase, but you must turn when I recall you. And over the course of time I'm going to slowly taper that back. So to the point where you begin to anticipate being recalled and you check your own chase up. So now you've been staunch, you're not ripping birds, we're loose in the woods. If you do rip birds, I'm I'm now it's an egregious fault, and I'm taking the chase away from you quickly. So if you're staunch, I'm going to allow you to chase to a point, and I'm going to start tapering your chase back. If you're ripping your bird, and as long as it's fair and you understand it, I'm going to start taking that chase out pretty quickly to the point of of something we call a controlled crash, which I'm not sure <laughs> – again, one of those things we could spend an entire podcast <laughs> It's a, it's a you know it's a good tool to have in the box and some dogs need it most dogs don't um
0: we might have to save that that one for another day because right now yeah. th- this is full circle it's really making a lot of sense you' you're creating that staunch dog so that then you can create that steady dog and and just that separation I think it's it's this whole again you don't have the method the grace and method whatever it is. It's all starting to kind of take shape.
1: It is. And so when we think, you know, and so that's it. We've, we essentially got through how to build your gun dog. No, whoa. You could stop. If you got to managing chase and you never taught the dog, whoa, you never taught him to stop and stand from upwind to the launcher. Like we addressed earlier, it wouldn't matter. You'd have a great dog, dog that would probably go into the field and learn how to back naturally on wild birds. Like I remember you guys talking about that on one of your recent <laughs> podcast episodes it's a numbers game. Um and so when we're when we're introducing manners artificially is where woe for me matters. And really outside of that, everything else can be accomplished by hunting. Even on your pin raised birds, when the dog does it when the dog believes that flushing and chasing are not going to get them what they want. Getting what in order to get what you want, you, you staunch it first and you wait and see what happens. And then once I've got all that stuff, I go back to to shooting birds in the field from from downwind of you it's you're not high as a kite you watch birds fall we go through that whole process and we bring that all back together later and we got a completely finished dog you know but um the utility in that stop and stand down the road is really it's it's icing on the cake stuff it's not something that i need to build a dog with in my opinion yeah
0: and, and and I mean again, that's what we're after, you know. As, as we start trying to wrap this up, you know, some somebody listening to this, if they've kind of, if they kind of missed where where we just went through, I I would urge them to go back and listen to it again because you did just teach that dog bird manners before the flush, after the flush, like you said, you're managing that chase, you're you're pretty much drawing them in afterwards if you need to, but with recall. You you have the tools at your disposal. You just don't have woe, or, or at least in the sense of woe that everybody's accustomed to nowadays.
1: Yeah, and it's again, you know, when that when the chase, you know, when we're after the flush, and you see that dog begin to chase, and they get two or three steps in, and they watch that bird away, they stop because they anticipate the recall. Never taught them woe, but they don't want to be recalled, so they just stop and watch that bird away stylishly, but that's al- almost every time I see that, I shoot him a bird <laughs> and I unravel all the way down and we start over again. <laughs> right, and, that, and, and and so, you know, it, it's, we're always looking to get on on the balance beam with the dog and, and let them know. And then it gets easy <laughs> through the course of time, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if something bad happens with a bird, that's not your, that's not your dog's fault. You know, I mean, it's if, if your dog's out there catching birds on the ground early, um, that's because in my opinion, you don't have high quality birds and you're, or you're planting them incorrectly or whatever. Uh, You know, if you're frustrated with your dog over that kind of thing and you feel like the answer is, whoa, I, I, you know, in my opinion, I think you'd be serving your dog better by working to find harder flying birds and, and letting them exercise a little bit of their, um, predatory nature, in my opinion,
0: and and to to sum this up and 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 start closing this out. Ultimately, like like you said, this can this is going to be different for every dog. Some dogs faster, some dogs slower. Some reps, some it, it depends on the age, it depends on the maturity, it depends on the makeup of the dog. Uh, but you truly are training the dog that's right in front of you, and and this is for the people that. For whatever reason, say they have a mental hang-up, they don't want woe, or or there's they don't feel like it's necessary, you know? It's like you just gave the entire breakdown of how you can go about doing this and, and how some people do it. You know, the the Wes Gibbons, they, they do this to where they never have to name woe. Uh, but like you said, you... Let me ask you, like, why why name it at the very end of it? You know, I don't, I don't, I can't remember if you said why, but you said that you do it, <laughs> but why why
1: do well, you? Put I a I'd name like on to it? have an I like to have an auditory cue. I mean, it's just simple I can stop you with the with the collar. I can, you know, I can give you a light. Most of my dogs can be running full tilt boogie across the field, thirty to fifty yards away from me, and I hit them with a very low level nick on the collar, and their first inclination is going to be. Pull up like a quarter horse and look to the sky. Right. Um, but it's some, you know. It, I also want to be able to do that same thing. I, it wouldn't matter if I told you stand. It, it doesn't matter. The word that comes out of your mouth is completely irrelevant. I, you know. I grew up messing around with bird dogs, and whoa was a was a part of my vocabulary. You know, prior to to becoming to doing things the way I do them now, um, and it still is. You know, yeah. I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And I I do acknowledge the value in having your dog stop and stand and stay in that situation. And I have no problem with you using the word woe to do that. It's if your dog's creeping and you're screaming woe at it. And, you know, um, and it's not a problem. I don't want to, you know, I I don't want to make it. I I never want to be exclusive and I never want to make people feel bad for anything they're doing. I think, in my opinion, you're just devaluing the sound of your voice or you're gonna to have to back that up with some pressure that could be damaging to your dog's relationship with birds. And so I think you're putting you're painting yourself into a pretty bad corner if you're playing that game. Mm-hmm. And, and to a lot of people, that's what woe breaking means, you know yeah. and, and, and so to me that's that's not what I mean when I think yeah. about the word
0: Yeah. Well, Grayson, I mean, is, is there anything else that you think that we, we should add? I know, again, this was a tough topic. Uh, you are the first person I called because I knew you were probably the, 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 I don't know, biggest dog nerd that I, I know of that would want to tackle a subject such as this. Uh, but I, it, it just fascinates me to where I just spent four or five weeks covering on on whoa 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 and it's just like well here here's an opportunity or an option for you if you don't even want to teach your dog whoa but you still end up with the same result and arguably a dog that uh is probably a little bit more staunch or at least has the manners uh i don't i don't know I don't i don't want to use a word unfairly or say that it's going to be more staunch or more have better manners but ultimately you you created a rock solid foundation throughout all of this
1: I'll I'll end it with kind of with this thought is it does take. Um, it's hard to buy into what I talk about. I get a lot of clients that have, whether they've gone to training days or other trainers, whether it be a rehab, when I start talking about this stuff, it's like, <laughs> it, it, it's like I, I'm trying to sell them something, or there's some kind of hippie weirdo that's kind of going off in a different direction oftentimes. And And I would just say like, it, it's an experiential process. You know, if, if if you're interested in doing it this way and you're close to me, come see me. You know, I, I, you're welcome to come join me all day long. Plan some launchers for me and watch me train bird dogs and and watch it work, you know. But I do think it's hard to visualize before before you see it happen in real life. And especially if you're struggling training your bird dog now. You know, it's easy to hear me say these things while you're, you know, you're over there struggling. And and again, I want to make sure everybody knows I don't have a problem with the way anybody else in the world chooses to train their bird dog. And I acknowledge that some of the best bird dogs and that have ever lived have been trained by some of the greatest trainers that have ever lived that do everything differently than me. Um and and so you know it's important, especially in the age of the internet, to 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 give credit where credit's due and to acknowledge that people can be different than you and still good. We don't have to be in our teams. And so I'm not team no woe, but, but I am, you know, somebody that enjoys watching dogs develop naturally and given, you know, trying my best to kind of facilitate that. And so that's all this is to me.
0: Absolutely, man. Well, well with that, let's, uh, your favorite part plug where everybody can find you on social your 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 little podcast That from time to time you throw something (laughs) out you know plug all that stuff for for anybody that did enjoy this the the hippie talk as you just called it a second ago uh maybe they can kind of see what else you've done and and uh follow along
1: sure so i uh www.losthighwaykennels.com is my, uh, is my website. I've got all the obligatory social out there and I am active on it. Um, I have a podcast, uh, that we have plans for future episodes. We just don't have plans to do them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not really sure how that works out, but that sounds about right with your podcast. Yeah.
1: (laughs) it's uh so it's companion gun dog podcast and and um you know i i hope anybody that has questions would be feel free to engage but as always don't expect a response cuz i'm terrible about that too so if you want to hear from me call call my friend emily um and i can't give you that number <laughs> but, you know i do I, I do hopefully i would love to help people and and that's my objective out there but uh you know, get in, get involved, get engaged, find other people out there to train with, and have fun, man. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, well, I enjoyed catching up with you. It's been too long. We, we're we're uh, we're gonna have to have you back on without making it too long of a gap again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look forward to seeing you sometime. Before yeah, too.
0: No, absolutely. I appreciate it, and we'll talk soon.
1: All right. Take care, man.
0: All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that wrap-up of the Woe series with Grayson Geyer. This episode was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunts, and Final Rise Vest System. Uh, this was a really interesting episode for me. I love exploring concepts and and talking to guys such as Grayson Geyer, who uh, he'll, he'll tell you himself he's real heady on a lot of topics, but I love exploring his thought processes. It, it seems to allow me or give me the opportunity to understand things in a different light or or at least a different thought process and so i love kind of exploring this this idea or topic with him after doing uh, n- numerous methods and weeks talking about how to train woe there are some people that don't use woe at all they don't they don't believe in it and uh, their methods maybe don't ascribe to it at least not in the same sense of of things and so dipping our toes into the Wes Gibbons method was was a lot of fun. And for those, as I kind of talked about in the episode, stay tuned for those Wes Gibbons junkies. There's going to be uh, more coming very soon. I think you're, you're going to be uh, pleased with it. So if, if you feel like we didn't do the the method justice, or at least in how we covered it or talked about it, then by all means, stay tuned. I think you're, you're going to appreciate what we have coming out. But after after recording on it, after letting it resonate, thinking about it and everything, you know that we this was a longer episode. I think it can ultimately be summed up into into one thing: uh, no woe equals managing chase. And at the time when he said that in the episode, you know I'm recording with him. It didn't really catch, or at least it didn't uh, weigh as heavy as it should. But listening back on it, kind of getting some timestamps and notes made. I heard him say that and it made me stop and think managing chase you know we hear that all the time I don't I don't think people really hear the words that, that, that is managing chase not avoiding chase which is often i think kind of mixed up in a lot of ways especially when you you go you're brand new to it or something, and you're very early on starting out with just yanking back on a dog. You see it a lot at training days, people trying to help, you know, the best way they can and telling everybody, you know, don't let that dog chase from day one. Uh, after, after the years of doing this and talking to everybody such as Grayson and, and all these other trainers, when we, when you start talking about managing chase, it really is managing the chase. Use the chase as a benefit and a tool instead of just doing wh- how I was taught years ago, going back to the episode I did with Austin talking about how we were taught to just, you know, when the dog goes on point, we give them low and then we hit them when they move. Uh, that's kind of avoiding The chase, what I like about this method and the way Grayson talked about it in a way way that a lot of these other methods talked about it is, woe is the foundation. And then when you extend into steadiness from uh, after the flush, remember, staunch is pre-flush, steadiness is post-flush. That's when you have to manage the chase. And I don't want to, most dogs can come through, I guess, calling it avoiding the chase, but A lot of dogs would be better off if you went slow, more methodical, and you managed it. You built up to it. Like Grayson said, you're ultimately trying to get the dog to anticipate that recall and come back to where that dog's checking up on its own and managing its own chase. And you're not having to pull on a check cord. You're not having to hit it with the collar. You're not even having to recall it. All that's built up over time. It's built up with intention and it's built up with baby steps. And so that's that's my biggest takeaway coming from this episode. Uh, specifically, there's there's more takeaways that I got from talking to these people week after week and and. And learning different methods and there's common threads through all of them you know just the definition of it while everybody had different words to define well ultimately the end result was the same to stop moving until you're told to move again uh and Another common thread that you heard in, I think, every single episode was stop watering down the command. If you use "woe," if you train "woe," stop using it over and over and over again. A lot of people I know don't—they don't even like using it in the house or anything outside of around birds. They want the wor- word "woe" to be associated with birds. I can understand that, uh, but the the main point is just stop watering it down. If you don't need to use the command. Don't use it. Don't walk up to the dog holding your hand out like a crossing guard, repeating woe over and over and over again. To me, like the, there's a few things in the, in the bird dog world to where it's like it's preference. You know, it's like I'm not right or wrong. This is just how I prefer to do things. This is one of those things to where I I truly can't come up with a positive or a benefit to doing it that way. It's your dog. It's your hunt. It's your training. If you want to keep saying whoa over and over again, it's America. Nobody's going to stop you. I'm not going to, you know, it, it is what it is. But if you think you're accomplishing something by doing that, you just heard weeks of trainers and, and handlers telling you that it's kind of pointless. All you're doing is watering down the command. And so why train something if all you're going to do is make it meaningless? And so that, that's the way I look at it. And then, uh, yeah, just just remember what woe is there for. It's supposed to be the building blocks into steadiness. Woe is pre-flush or, or staunch is pre-flush. And then steady is post-flush. And woe belongs in the pre-flush. You can use it to get them to check up later, you know, to, again, try and manage that chase. It depends on how you go about doing things. But just remember, every single one of these trainers and methods, there's a process. There's a method to get up to that point. So all of those individual steps matter in each individual method. So, uh, yeah, I hope this this series was as valuable to you, you guys as I, I was – planning it to be as I was hoping it would be and, and ultimately I think we kind of nailed it there were a couple suggestions or trainers or or processes that I didn't personally know or were was really that a, a, aware of uh, that some listeners came to me with during the the uh, during the series. I'm going to get them on. I, I'm reaching out to them. I'm talking to a couple of them. Obviously, it's not going to make it into this series, but that doesn't mean that I can't go talk to them about their methods on a future episode. So just let you know, if, if you guys hit me up, you know, uh, Perfection Kennels came up a couple times and and I'm trying to message them and, and see. So just let you guys know, if you reach out to me with a suggestion and said that there's somebody else doing it a different way, uh, you know, just, just let you know that it didn't fall on deaf ears. I'm, I'm going to see what... What can shake out of that, but it might, might be a while. Uh, so, yeah, with all that being said, I'm going to wrap this up. This was a little bit longer of an episode. Uh, the extended outro on Patreon is going to be training at the expense of your dog. What does that even mean? Go sign up for Patreon, find out. I'm going to give my thoughts on that and give you a couple different snippets on that. Uh, With that being said, in addition to the extended outros, I do bonus episodes. There's some discount codes up there. There's some early release profile episodes. We're really trying to uh, ramp up Patreon. Um, I just did a a new sticker giveaway uh, to, to all Patreon patrons as kind of a thank you for supporting the podcast and helping us grow because... Patreon—it's obviously just a, a completely voluntary crowdsourcing uh, platform that allows you to support the the uh, brands or, or creators that you come to know, like, enjoy, find valuable, whatever. Fill in the blank. So if you if you want to consider signing up for Patreon, go. Hit it up. It's patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Besides that, I'm not going to bore you anymore with any more housekeeping. I appreciate everybody for hitting download and hitting play. It means the world to us. And we'll check back next week with another fun and exciting episode presented by Standing Stone Supply. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under gun dog it Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gun dog it Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting.